off to the corner of the White House here in Washington, D.C., is the in the executive building that houses various White House offices, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, reviews agency submissions for new rules. Recently, OSHA quietly submitted a proposed interim final rule without much by way of explanation. What's in that rule? OSHA stated that it intends to revise its current rules for issuing subpoenas in order to avoid having to repetitively explain to a court its reasons for why its subpoenas are bona fide. Because it is an interim final rule, there will be no rulemaking. Therefore, no chance for stakeholders to comment on these unknown rule changes. Today, we'll talk more about this. I'm Monish Rath, and this is the May 2023 episode of the OSHA 3030. Well, welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030. As I said, I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, DC. And I've been engaged in the practice of law for maybe 28 years, almost all of which uh, have been dedicated and focused on the field of the occupational safety and health law. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Taylor Johnson, also an attorney here at Keller and Heckman. And I'm very grateful to you, Taylor, for joining us. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Manish. Really appreciate it. Taylor, we got a great topic today. It's uh, quietly we saw, without much fanfare, this submission appeared in the OIRA docket. And I think it's a it's potentially going to be a really important entry into the docket, but we don't really know what's in it. And so it's very hard to gauge the scale of the changes that OSHA is hoping to slip in without rulemaking. That's exactly right, Manish. And so we've got a great program lined up to discuss that today. Uh, So first, we'll talk about OSHA's interim final rule, uh, what we know, and as you mentioned, more importantly, what we don't know uh, at this point. Uh, We'll then go through uh, the current OSHA subpoena powers, um, where they derive the power to issue a subpoena from at this point in time. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about a case. We'll go into the background of Dale Printing Company, and um, we'll, we'll go through the investigation of that case. This was a case um, in, the, in the district court for Missouri um, that deals with uh, subpoena powers. Um, and so we'll go through the legal elements of subpoenas and warrants, uh, provide an analysis of that Secretary of Labor versus Dale Printing Publishing uh, case. Um, then we'll go into what is an interim final rule, um, what employers should do. As always, we'll leave you with some practical takeaway items to take back to your office. Um, and then back by uh, popular demand, uh, we'll go off record uh, for a session. We'll answer some questions um, from the audience that, that, that come in during today's program. So, Yeah, we'll turn off all the recordings. And so that's just for the live audience. We've, uh, we've skipped that for the past two episodes in, in March and April. Uh, and we got a lot of feedback from folks in our OSHA 3030 community that they really like participating in the live webinar and not catching this on a podcast, if possible, because they like this off the record session. And that's your chance, you and the OSHA 3030 community, to ask questions that, that are on your mind that maybe we haven't covered as our headline topic for the OSHA 3030. So that's back. And we're going to stick around, turn off the recordings. And for the live audience here on May 17th of 2023, we're going to chat with, with our live audience uh, just one-on-one, answer any questions you might have on your mind. 
two at least questions that I recollect have been submitted in the past two days. And so we've put them up uh, on a slide, but, but certainly use the question and answer function here on your browser if you have questions that you'd like posed at the end that are not going to be recorded and won't be published. Uh, so here we go. Let's get into OSHA's interim final rule on subpoenas. Well, it starts with a notice that was published at OIRA. Taylor, this is, this is interesting. It's interesting not in what they said. It's interesting in the vast amount of information that went unsaid. Right. Um, so, so what we know at this point um, is that the, this interim final rule is going to deal with OSHA's ability to issue subpoenas. Um, you know, they, they basically say that they're going to adopt a regulation addressing the use of subpoenas during OSHA investigations. And then what we also know is that it's scheduled to be released in June. But as you mentioned, uh, a lot not said here, and, and also um, I think uh, going to be a sort of a limited or at least not typical opportunity for folks to make, uh, to make comments here, Manish. Yeah, and the, the reason that they stated that the agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, stated on the face of its submission to OIRA for this interim final rule is that OSHA has stated that it wants to take a look retrospectively at the repetitive process that it's gone through before courts, which OSHA asserts has been time-consuming, in engaging in disputes over the validity of their subpoenas, disputes with employers upon whom they've issued subpoenas. And OSHA has stated to OIRA that it intends to adopt a regulation that will address the agency's use of subpoenas during its investigations in the hopes that this new regulation, it claims, might provide clarity to the agency and to the regulated public, the employers, on these issues, and, and that maybe there would be some, some uniformity going forward. I don't know that the uniformity or the clarity would be aided by this regulation as compared to the existing statement of law that the courts have used to apply themselves to challenges to OSHA subpoenas. But that is the reason that OSHA proffered for issuing an uh, interim final rule. Taylor? Right. You know, OSHA mentions these sort of recurrent issues um, that, that happen in the, when they essentially have to go to court, you know, and get a judge to enforce their subpoenas. They have to defend them and that, you know, these, this keeps coming up. But, you know, no information managed in, in, the, in the announcement about the rule as to what these recurrent issues are. You know, I, I certainly can't remember a time uh, when there was, um, you know, something potentially so important here with, with so little information released about it. So uh, there's been a lot of speculation to this point as to what, you know, the, what will be in this interim final rule. Yeah, I think that's right, Taylor. I think interim final rules generally are, should be by a, any scrupulous agency should be a measure of last resort and that mm -hmm. open, accessible rulemaking with comments and opportunity to comment by stakeholders should be always the preferred first, second, and third choice method for rulemaking by any agency. Um, so what we don't know, as you say, Taylor, is that what are the challenges that employers have raised to subpoenas in the past? What are the defenses that OSHA has uh, employed before the courts to defend their subpoenas in the past? How have the courts ruled? What are the real issues that uh, OSHA refers to as recurrent issues that keep coming up. And even if they've prevailed most of the time, I think they have. Why do they keep getting challenged if indeed 
they they keep prevailing in courts. Uh, is there something about the explanation provided on the face of the subpoena that could have been improved? In plain, there, the, all, none of these uh, questions have been addressed on the face of the submission to OIRA in supporting or explaining the interim final rule proposal that's currently before OIRA. Well, that's a, a lot of information that we would have felt a lot better about if we knew what's going on and why, why this is something Ocean believes is necessary, particularly necessary to use an interim final rule for. Uh, exactly, Manish. And so we did want to at least go through the, the current OSHA subpoena powers. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, an interim final rule doesn't need to go through notice and comment rulemaking. So hard to imagine, Manish, what they're going to change, given that the power to issue subpoenas is currently derived from a statute, uh, you know, specifically the OSH Act, um, Section 8B, you know, which gives, while conducting inspections and investigations, you know, the Secretary of OSHA the power to require either attendance and testimony of witnesses or the production of evidence. Right. So let's talk about OSHA's subpoena power. OSHA gets its subpoena power. It's not expressly stated in the Act, but it, it comes from the Act. It comes from Section 8 of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, promulgated by Congress in uh, 1970. And that's the original founding statutory enabling act for all of OSHA law. And it's the enabling statute for the existence of the agency itself. And in it, it states that when conducting an investigation, OSHA has the power to enter a premise, to seek documents, to interview witnesses. And it, it also states that if it is running into any problems in gaining access to these things, access to the premises, to documents, to witnesses, that it may go to a court and seek a court order. And that's what it says in Section 8. So the subpoena is merely the vehicle through which it states that it would like to see these documents and that it has the reserve power to go to court if the employer doesn't cooperate with the subpoena. So that's that. it's important to start off our discussion today, Taylor, I think, for the benefit of those on the uh, listening to the OSHA 3030, with where OSHA gets its power. And the answer is straight from the statute that creates the agency and that creates the OSHA Act. Right. And that, that gives the agency power to engage in investigations to begin with. Right. And so we also um, wanted to note that Chapter 15 of OSHA's field manual um, also goes into great detail on, on OSHA subpoena powers. And provides information um, about what area directors can do, um, and, and specifically on the types of documents that they can ask for. Um, so, so these would include, you know, injury and illness records, you know, your OSHA 300 logs, um, various information about your written programs, such as HASCOM or, or lockout tagout. Um, you know, I think access to medical records also monitors something that, that we've seen before. Um, you know, that OSHA has issued subpoenas for. So certainly, you know, a great deal of documents that they could they could ask for. Right. And for those of you who are familiar, let me just remind the rest of us that the field operations manual is the internal document from OSHA to its area directors advising on how to conduct investigations effectively. And that this particular passage, Taylor, that you're describing is the way in which the agency advises area directors on how to issue subpoenas or what subpoenas can be issued or, or what can be sought in subpoenas. Right. And so it's merely interpretive of the subpoena power granted by the Congressional Act. So why, why does OSHA believe that it has repetitive problems, that it has to explain itself in court for its subpoenas, 
What did it say in the uh, OIRA submission? Nothing that we can see from the outside. Uh, but, but we, Taylor, you and I, we took a look around at some of the subpoena contests that they have uh, had established as a matter of court record. And I think Dale, Dale Printing Company is probably one of the examples that, that the agency would use and probably one of the ones that we should discuss with the OSHA 3030 community to illustrate what we think is the problem OSHA is trying to refer to as, as an example. Uh, that's exactly right. And so this is a very recent case, um, District Court for Missouri. Um, so just to, to ground you in the facts a little bit here, so Dale Printing Company, um, established in 1923, uh, was initially a letterpress shop. They end up making um, sort of the, the clam plastic packaging that everyone has such a hard time getting into um, that, <laughs> that you see across store shelves today. Yeah, it's, it's uh, particularly ironic when these blister packs encase a pair of scissors. <laughs> <laughs> and they're located in St. Louis. They're founded in Kirkwood, Missouri, which is a suburb just just due west of downtown St. Louis. And now they're in St. Louis proper uh, in the, with their, their what I'll call blister pack uh, operations. And, and this all starts with, a, with, a, with an investigation based on a whistleblower complaint. That's right. Uh, whistleblower complaints, um, essentially alleging retaliation um, you know, for, for reporting unsafe practices at the St. Louis, Missouri location. And then OSHA issues two subpoenas one for documents, and then one for testimony. Um, testimony, in this case, actually from the owner, uh, Eric Forstell. Well, so Taylor, as you know, we, you and I have done this, uh, represented employers, large and small, in federal states and in state plan states all around the country where these, these subpoenas are routine. And even before that, they might just issue in letter format a request for information, but it has the invisible power of subpoena behind it. And the documents that that they seek are typically they run the range from being squarely within the stated purpose of the investigation to sometimes being a, a little bit uh, afield to a far afield. And so when you see these uh, requests for information, requests for documents, uh, generally speaking, a request for documents is a perfectly reasonable instrument for the agency to use. What document is being requested? is a different matter. Each one needs to be evaluated carefully by OSHA counsel, uh, who's done you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of these. But then let me move on to the question of uh, seeking testimony from the owner. That, that too seems to me to be a very ordinary type of request by the agency to seek yep. an interview with witnesses. No, that, absolutely. Definitely not, not uncommon. I think, you know, what is particularly interesting, as you'll see in this case, is that, you know, OSHA really doesn't get much response or cooperation, if any, um, from Dale Printing. Um, they're actually denied access to the facility. The, the company does not re respond to any of the requests for documents or testimony. And so, the, you know, the case kind of gets, gets a little more inter interesting at that point. Yeah, that's right. Taylor, you've put together a really well-organized timeline of events. So it all starts in December, December 3rd of 2020 when OSHA opened its inspection. That's right. And then OSHA sent some opening letters. Those letters were delivered. Um, so this is around December 14th. And then the in inspector, uh, you know, notes that he, he calls weekly. Um, so definitely OSHA here, you know, making multiple attempts uh, to, to get in touch with, with Dale. Right. If I recollect, the compliance officer claims that he called on December 7th, December 14th, December 23rd, December 30th. So precisely once per week through the month of January, 2021. 
I would point out, of course, as many of you are probably thinking to yourselves right now, that this would have been in the epicenter of the COVID uh, era, and that a lot of employers had uh, moved their operations to you know, work from home. But this was a manufacturing and potentially an essential operation. And in any event, there's no, uh, there's no room expressly provided by enforcement agencies for employers who have maybe, where a particular employee may be working from home, for them to disregard all US mails coming in uh, for any significant length of time. But I do believe that so far we're at January of 2021, and many of you may be thinking, all right, so far, I would be willing to cut them a little slack. It's, they received their first notice of the uh, opening of the investigation December 14th, and now you're, you're at the end of January. Cut them a little slack, given the unique properties of the COVID era. But let's keep going and see, see if this persists any longer than that. Right. So it does. So March, March 5th, uh, 2021, OSHA attempts uh, subpoena service. Because uh, they the hadn't heard from, hadn't heard at all. Exactly. The, the, the regional investigator attempted service of the subpoenas, um, but was denied entrance to the facility. Uh, and so then at that point, March 11th, uh, the subpoenas were delivered uh, via UPS. Two weeks later, March 26th, was the deadline that the, on the face of those subpoenas to provide documents and to supply testimony. At that point, if you had simply responded and said, we can't give you testimony by the 26th, but we're responding before the 26th and we'd like to schedule a date for the interview. That, in my experience, likely would have sufficed. And I've, I've dealt with this specific area office, the OSHA area office in St. Louis, and uh, have had a great working relationship with the folks that I worked with there. Uh, so I do believe if the folks who are currently in the St. Louis area office are anything like the ones I've worked with, uh, then I would have believed that there, there would have been a cooperative process if you simply said, hey, let's explore available dates. So, so that's what brings us to, to you know, late March of 2021. Right. And they've issued a subpoena now. Exactly. And so what we wanted to do quickly was just to go through the elements um, of enforcing a subpoena. Um, so so this, this motion to enforce the subpoenas comes before the U.S. District Court uh, for the Eastern District of Missouri. And, and there's three factors, Manish, um, I, taken from a Mort, the Morton Salt Company case, a Supreme Court case in 1950, uh, three factors here that the courts will look to uh, when enforcing a subpoena. That's right. So the Morton Salt case is the sort of headwater case now, and it was cited by the court in this case when OSHA went back and said, hey, we issued a subpoena. Can you issue a court order enforcing that subpoena? And the courts said, well, when we apply the Morton Salt case, we're going to ask three questions of you, OSHA. First, we want to know whether the subpoena, the documents requested or the interview or the scope of subject matter to be covered in the interview is within your authority as an agency. And second is, is the demand um, not too indefinite? Um, so essentially looking at whether or not the demand, the requests are, are limited in time and scope. Right. And whether it's sufficiently specific or whether you're saying just give us all correspondences for the last 80 years. Right, right. Uh, so it has to be, have specificity for, in order for the courts to evaluate the sufficiency of the subpoena. And then the third question that the court's going to ask the agency is, is the information that you're seeking reasonably relevant to the authorized inquiry? In this case, there was a whistleblower complaint. And are you seeking documents that will help you with the whistleblower complaint? Or is it what I would call maybe a fishing expedition, where now that we've got a whistleblower complaint, we're going to ask you for every single document that we want relating to your 
um, subpoena and to your safety program generally. Sorry. And, and so the court is going to say, we're going to find out whether the information you're seeking is relevant to the purpose of your investigation. And I think that all of those are reasonable inquiries. Hopefully an agency will have a reasonable answer. In this case, Taylor? In this case, they did. Um, so, so the court finds that OSHA meets the test here on all three of the elements. Um, with respect to being within the authority of the agency, uh, the court finds that the OSHA Act gives the secretary sort of broad authority to investigate you know, this retaliation claim in, in, in this instance and subpoena documents and testimony um, that's relevant. Well, let's keep going with the story then, Taylor. So, so the court uh, liked the answers that OSHA gave to the court when the, the court asked the basic three questions arising out of Morton Salt, the Morton Salt case. Uh, and now we're in August of 2021, and they still have no answer. Now we have a court order, and we still have no answer by August 11th. And that's right. when OSHA brings its motion to enforce the subpoena. Right, which, which we know is granted. The judge then in October orders the owner, uh, Eric Farcell, to appear. Um, and then uh, a couple months go by, um, still no movement at all, no activity um, from Dale Printing in this case. And then so on February 28th, OSHA files a motion for contempt. Which means that they, they really allowed for, oh, one, two, three, four, five months more yeah. after the judge ordered uh, Mr. Forstall to appear before they filed another motion with the court for contempt. And the court sits on that uh, and visits that, that motion on April 27th. So another uh, three months go by, almost two months, sorry, go by. And then they issue a contempt order. They agree with OSHA that, that Mr. Forstall and Dale Printing have been acting in contempt of the court order. That's bad news. Now, fast forward one more month, and Mr. Forstall still hasn't responded. Right. And then so what happens at that point is that the judge issues an arrest warrant uh, for Eric Forstall. Um, certainly, uh, <laughs> we don't typically see that happen, but it certainly can. And, and so things definitely take a turn <laughs> for the worse here. Um, and for, he's for held Dale into Printing. court uh, under arrest. Yes. Well, when it rains, it pours. Exactly. That was my Morton Salt reference in case you, <laughs> anyone missed it. July 21, the, there's a new deadline to comply with this. So he goes before the court and he explains, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, don't, I was wrong and I don't intend to continue to act in contempt of the court. And so the court gives him a new deadline and says, all right, you, you've got seven more days to comply with the subpoena. Right. And, and then the case is eventually dismissed. I, I think we'll, we get some more information on that um, on one of the next slides. But I, th I think we did want to take time quickly just to go through the elements of the contempt order. Certainly not something that you know, we typically see happen, but, but wanted to just break those down a little bit. Right, because when he's coming into court at this juncture in August, in July, he's now not explaining what his objections are to the subpoena. He's now explaining why he's uh, been in, engaged in contempt of the court order. That right. is a, a, what often is referred to as a motion to show cause, and the the penalty on a motion to show cause is a contempt order, and he, he has to explain why the court should not issue such an order. Right. And so again, the, there's three elements. Exactly. Three elements, again. Uh, in this case, it's that a valid court order existed. The, the alleged contempt order had acknowledge of the order um, and then disobeyed the order. Um, so those are the three sort of straightforward elements. In the, in those are the questions the court's going to ask in determining right. whether for itself, whether or not it should issue an order of contempt. 
associated with that might be jail time penalties. He's already been in jail. And the question is, is there uh, going to be a sentence of jail time penalties, uh, sanctions, attorney's fees, et cetera? Right. And so initially the answer was yes. And in, in all three of those instances <laughs> that a subpoena was issued, it was properly served. And then, you know, Mr. Forstell never responded. So checks in all those boxes. So the story goes on from, from August? Right. Um, so it, it goes on from August. Um, I, I think the key point here, you know, we've covered most of it, is that on July 14th, Mr. Forstell finally does uh, appear in court. Uh, this is after the arrest warrant was issued. Uh, so that's sort of what it took to get him to appear in court. But at that point, he appears. He asks for additional time for counsel to retain counsel. Uh, he then actually concedes that he will uh, meet with an investigator and will produce documents. So eventually, OSHA does get cooperation in this case. And he has to pay attorney's fees to OSHA, which I think could be substantial. And uh, he's not issued sanctions, which could have compounded on top of the, the attorney's fees. Right. Uh, but, and, and, I, and in that sense, I think he probably got off light. I would have been worried if I were in his shoes, if I was facing jail time and sanctions. Yeah. Uh, but he, he got off relatively light with having to pay attorney's fees and uh, the court waiving the, the contempt sanctions. Yep. So that's one case. There were other cases. We found many other cases where OSHA had to enforce its subpoena. And I will share with you, uh, those of you in the OSHA 3030 community, that in all of the cases we've taken a look at, OSHA prevailed in enforcing its subpoena. We only looked in the past few recent years, but they do span both of the past, the current and the past administration. The Ben E. Keith company uh, subpoena enforcement was uh, under the last administration's OSHA, and the court applied again the Morton Salt factors, and again, the employer had failed to show that its objections were uh, sympathetic to the court, and OSHA succeeded in showing that its subpoena was bona fide and within the three elements of the of the Morton Salt case, for example, that it was relevant to its investigation, that it had the authority to issue the subpoena, that the subpoena requests specifically were stated with sufficient specificity and definitiveness. Uh, those the, that OSHA prevailed on, uh, OSHA continued to prevail upon. So when it says to OIRA, we think that this is something that we've had to litigate too many times, and you know we have a consistent track record of being right, is what they really should have added to that. I think that they would have uh, been well, def- uh, it would have been a defensible statement. Many of the objections that have been raised in the recent reported decisions have lost. The employer has lost in raising those objections. Let me be clear, though. Does that mean that all objections are losers or destined to lose? No, I don't think so. Does that mean that OSHA, that employers shouldn't bother with those objections? Certainly, I don't believe that. I believe that these objections should continue to be evaluated, which brings us around to the last section of, of our OSHA 3030 episode, which is what we think in light of this case, what of, of, of the OIRA publication, what we think employers should do. Well, Taylor, I'll start. For, first of all, I think that we all of us listening in the OSHA 3030 community need to keep an eye out on this interim final rule and how it develops. You'll have a very brief period, six months as an interim final rule, and then it could become without any opportunity for comments from us stakeholders, it could become a direct, uh, a final rule. That's right, Mon. It's certainly something that we'll be watching closely. The next takeaway, just applicable to, to subpoenas in general, is to assert those applicable objections, uh, objections to a subpoena as to you know, how, how 
how definitive it is, the scope, um, you know, is it asking for things temporally that don't make sense? I think really breaking that down and looking at those elements, looking at what you can object to, especially in the, in the, the lens of the Morton salt factors is certainly something that we recommend. Right, one of which is to also evaluate the objections that are applicable as to the relevance of the requested information, not just the definitiveness or the specificity, but the relevance of them to the underlying investigation. One of the uh, preliminary steps that an employer will have to take, therefore, would be to find out what's the scope of the investigation and what was the purpose of the investigation and how did the investigation originate. Right. And I think a lot of employers skip that step, but OSHA counsel is well-versed in knowing which questions to ask in order to evaluate the sufficiency of the subpoena. Right. And then even when producing documents, um, one thing that, that we do often monish is, you know, make sure that we we preserve our objections uh, for potential later rounds of production. So I, I think, you know, asserting any applicable objection, even while you're producing documents is important because you never know. And, and more than more often than not, um, the requests won't just stop with that first initial round of production. That's right, Taylor. I think that a lot of employers believe that if you're objecting, you're not going to have to produce. Right. And this is a distinction that... A, experienced OSHA counsel is quite comfortable with, it comes naturally to them, that the fact that you're objecting to the sufficiency of the request and the fact that you're producing or not producing documents uh, are not um, inextricably linked. They run as separate inquiries. And as you say, you may produce documents anyways after having stated your objection, but you should never omit a well-placed and bona fide objection simply because you're producing anyways. Um, that that's something that that has to be carefully considered on a document by document basis with uh, experienced social counsel. I think the next thing I'd say is to evaluate the investigation, its bona fides, and the bona fides of all defenses at the beginning of the investigation stage, not once the citation is issued or once a notice of contest has been raised, but much earlier than that, once the investigation has commenced, uh, employers together with their OSHA counsel should start examining what defenses they may have. And then finally, I'd say if there's, you know, one takeaway from the Dale printing case, it's certainly if issued a subpoena, you know, communication with OSHA is key. Um, you can often avoid litigation by, by you know, voicing your concerns or your, your problems with responding, um, asking for extensions, you know, doing all these things up front as opposed to just, you know, not responding at all. Uh, you certainly saw in, in the Dale printing case what could happen in, in, in the event. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's another area where experienced social counsel understands this fluidly, but sometimes employers believe that to, to raise objections is to take an adverse position to the agency in, an, in a, a hostile fashion, but that needn't be so. The, the parties need to have a working relationship with each other, a civil and respectful and working relationship with each other, and they need to cooperatively develop the evidence in a case and exchange evidence cooperatively. But part of that cooperative working relationship requires, as you say, uh, nonstop constant communication with each other. And it also involves stating your objections uh, forcefully, respectfully, and, uh, and defending them where you believe that a subpoena request has uh, trespassed over the line that it wouldn't be defensible under the three Morton Salt standard um, elements. So, so that process, I think, it, it requires walking that fine line that understands that this is supposed to be a working relationship and could be a long-term working relationship in some cases. We've had cases that have gone on for years and we've enjoyed uh, positive relationships with our, our counterparts in the office of the solicitor in, in almost all of those cases. 
Well, that's it for the OSHA 3030. Those are the things we think employers should do. Thank you all for attending the OSHA 3030. And we've wrapped it up in just, uh, just around 30 minutes this time, which is great news. We're, we've got more information that comes out from our OSHA practice group, from all of the attorneys in our practice group. So please find ways to stay connected, including through LinkedIn. Taylor, I know you and I both have LinkedIn pages. So do the other OSHA attorneys in our practice group. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so that it automatically gets downloaded when new episodes drop. Make sure you forward it on. We can also, for those who missed it, uh, they can also catch this episode with the slides, the audio, and the video on YouTube as well. You can catch that through our webpage, khlaw.com. Don't forget all of our prior episodes. This is, we're wrapping up close to 10 years of the OSHA 3030 every single month. So over 120, uh, almost 120 episodes, I should say, are on our website, uh, khlaw.com. Check them out. Many of them are as relevant today as they were when we first published them. And the last thing I'd say is don't forget, the only thing we ask for all of this rich content and source material is to, to please forward on to three other people. I know some of you have done so and we, you have our thanks and some of you have not yet done so. Please, right as soon as we hang up, take time, forward on information about the OSHA 3030 to at least three other people, in-house counsel, as well as safety and health professionals who are responsible for compliance with occupational safety and health law. Don't forget our sister programs as well. If your company is responsible for compliance with Tosca and Reach, we'll put up data in a moment. The next OSHA 3030 is at 1 p.m. June 14th, 2023. That's Eastern Time, United States. And more information about that next program can be found at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Our sister programs are coming up June 21 for Tosca 3030 and Reach 3030. On behalf of my friend and colleague, Taylor Johnson, here at Cowan Heckman, myself, and our great staff who helped put this together, including a shout out to, to Carol Trevi, to Emma Kyle, to uh, Caroline Mills, all have had a huge part in making this program. Thank you very much to all of those folks and to all of you in the OSHA 3030 community for, for being a part of this program. We're going to stick around. We're going to turn the recordings off and we're going to stick around for the off the record portion. So if you were part of our live program on May 17th, 2023, stick around. And for those of you who are catching this as a podcast, thank you all. We look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe. Mm-hmm.